very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, which has more than two segments, you know what to do. Go to our website, VeritasRadio.com, and click on the subscribe button. Give yourself the gift of truth. And have you ever wondered... Why 007 is James Bond's numerical designation? Do you remember the movie The Matrix and Neo's expiration date on his passport being September 11th, 2001? Or where the name Luke Skywalker comes from? How about all those giant faces that passed judgment on General Zod and his lieutenants at the beginning of 1978's Superman? What's behind the symbolism of all those mirrors in Black Swan? What's behind movies like Star Wars, The Shining, and many others. All of this and more with our special guest, Robert W. Sullivan IV, a veteran of this radio program, right now on Veritas. Robert W. Sullivan IV is a philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, theologian, writer, and lawyer. Prior to attending law school in the United States, he studied jurisprudence and international law at Oxford University. He holds a Juris Doctorate degree from Whitener University School of Law in Delaware. He's a Freemason, having joined Amicable St. John's Lodge No. 25 in Baltimore, Maryland in 1997. He became a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Mason in 1999. He is the author of two books, The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism his first published work, and the result of 20 years of research. His latest book is titled Cinema Symbolism, a guide to esoteric imagery in popular movies, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. To learn more about Robert Sullivan and his work, visit our website. We have links right there for you. And directly from Baltimore, Maryland, I'd like to welcome Robert Sullivan. Hello, Robert, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? I'm very well, Mel. Thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction, and thank you for having me back on um, Veritas. I sincerely appreciate it. Sure. Uh, always, always a pleasure. This book, I really enjoyed it, just because, first of all, I, I love movies, especially the classic ones. What uh, compelled you to write this? And, of course, our last interview dealt more with the Masonic rituals and, and the occult. Did you find connections with movies, and this is why you wrote this book? 
the answer to your question is basically yes. I'm like you. I'm a movie freak also, um, and I like all, all the genres. Um, you know, the, the modern day stuff, the classic back and black and whites. So I'm like you. I'm a huge movie buff as well. But yes, when I was writing Royal Trevinoch, um, which you which you correctly said was the result of 20 years of research, and I'm not going to go t- too much into this, but obviously. Um, when you're researching things like mysticism, astrology, the occult, numerology, Freemasonry, um, you know, I, this was what generated the Royal Arch of Enoch. And when, when I finished off the Royal Arch of Enoch, I sort of brought it up into modern times. The final chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch book delves, delves into what is best described as Masonic, Enochian, solar symbolisms in movies. Some of the movies I took on in, in Royal Arch of Enoch was movies like Being There with Peter Sellers. Um, Peter Sellers was a Freemason of all things, um, but a lot of people in Hollywood have been. Um, the Da Vinci Code movie, um, The Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp, which has a lot of Kabbalistic um, overtones. Um, and and the really some of the ones that really got me started on this was the two National Treasure movies um, with Nicolas Cage. Uh, the, the first National Treasure movie yeah. um, is just a retelling of the Royal Arch Ceremonial. So at any rate... Um, I, you know, I did, this was something that very impressed me. And, w- and what I sort of did was I took this 20 years of research and applied it to, to movies. Um, so Cinema Symbolism, a guide to esoteric imagery in popular movies, is sort of born out of the final chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch. It's sort of a continuation of that final chapter. Naturally, I couldn't have a 470-page chapter in cinema. Excuse me, in Royal Arch of Enoch. So I just limited the Royal Arch, um, the final chapter of Royal Arch of Enoch, to just these few um, movies that really were Masonic, Enochian, solar in nature. Um, and then I just immediately, when um, Royal Arch of Enoch was published, which was two years ago now, that was put out in August of 2012. I immediately started writing cinema symbolism, um, and and this is really just like you said. Um, you know, it, it's the 20 years of research applying it to motion pictures, and um, it carries forward this final chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch, and certainly movies that are covered in cinema symbolism. Um, it's not just free, Freemasonry, of course. It's the occult, mysticism, esoterica, numerology, astrology, mythology, um, you know, v- various, um, you know, mystery school traditions, um, you know, uh, things like that, uh, you know, Gnosticism, Kabbalism um, being placed in these movies. Um, and, you know, some of the movies that were, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about tonight, things like the Star Wars movies, um, Back to the Future, Black Swan, the James Bond films. And um, basically, I took the 20 years that I used to create the Royal Arch of Enoch and applied it to movies. And uh, Cinema Symbolism um, was released about a month and a half ago, and um, I'm most proud of it. And and, uh, I'm real happy with the way it turned out. You know, when we think of the word mythology, we think of fairy tales, urban legends, things that are not true. But in reality, the definition of mythology is sworn statements by priests and kings. Does that mean that the mythology Hollywood injects into movies may in fact, not all of it, of course, may be factual, and we see this a lot in science fiction movies, are movies the new mythology? Well, yeah, that, that's that's really the way I categorize it. And in fact, you just quoted back the opening line of the of of, of the book, and I basically say movies are the new mythology. Um, what they are doing is um, taking these these old legends and 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 lore of old and rebranding it, um, where you have you know the solar hero, the lunar goddess the evil father figure, the dark figure, um, and they are rebranding ancient mythology, and, and not only mythology, but, you know, themes relating to mysticism, astrology, numerology, 
um, things like that, and are, are just repackaging packaging it in movies. Um, and, and it works. I mean, this stuff is very powerful. Hollywood is printing money. Um, I, I do not believe that this is appearing by coincidence. I believe this is being intentionally done. Um, you know, in most cases, um, I cite reasons for this in the book. Um, there, there are many reasons to, to suggest why this is being done. Um, and of course, you know, money and, and profits is, of course, you know, one of the reasons that, that is motivating Hollywood. I mean, certainly that's, you know, no surprise or anything. So, yes, I do believe that movies are the new mythology. And um, I, I think a lot of, not all, of course, but a lot of movies incorporate this mysticism. And uh, in movies, it's, it's without question, is a very conduit and, um, you know, a very powerful conduit in society. You know, I was telling you offline that in the early 1980s, I had a friend whose fa father owned three movie theaters, and I was lucky to uh, be able to go to the movie theater and watch two movies per theater, Friday, then on Saturday to another one, and Sunday to another one. So for years, I was watching six movies every week, but I've noticed that there's uh, some kind of uh, ostracization. You know, if you, for example, quote a movie that's very famous, some people may ostracize you why do you think that is oh, oh i don't i don't know um I, I don't i don't think that way at all um um i i know I, I mean i i don't i don't know where, where are you getting that from i don't well you say some movies are so omnipresent that to not be familiar with them is a form of social oh, ostracization. Oh, I see. I, oh, I see what you're saying. No, what what I'm saying um, in in the in the movie, what I was saying in the book. Um, oh, I understand the question. Yeah, is um, basically what what I, the point I was trying to make make with this is is that some movies are just so ingrained into in, into our society. I mean, you know, and, and it's almost like a form of ostracization. No, I understand what you're asking me now. That not to be familiar with movies, um, whether you like the movie or not. But I mean, who who doesn't know who Mr. Spock is, or you know. Who doesn't know? Has never heard the phrase "May the force be with you," with you, exactly. or something like that. Yeah. So I mean, this stuff is just so omnipresent. No, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, who who hasn't heard of this stuff? I mean, and this is just this is the point I was making. Um, you know, at the top of the show a few minutes ago, is this stuff is just so powerful that um, you know, you know, I mean, who hasn't heard of this stuff? Um, you know, who isn't familiar with these lines um, and these movies that they come out of? So, so yeah, I mean, I mean, this just goes to show you and is evidence of how powerful um, and influential. Um, the, 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 the movie making industry is, I mean, on all levels, I mean, on, you know, n not only on an economic level where, you know, where they're making money, but on a socio level, I mean, on a, on a you know, on a, on a psychological level, I mean, everybody knows this material. I mean, it's very powerful. It's part of the social fabric. I mean, a lot of the phrases that people use on a daily basis, pushing the envelope or, or the, may the force be with you, a lot of these are part of life, and some people may not even know where it comes from. You know, the elderly, maybe even repeat that without even knowing the new generations. But we have seen a lot of hidden symbolism in movies, and, and when I say hidden, it's not actually hidden, but it's presented in a way so that our subconscious mind catches it unless someone can watch it later on a dvd you know stop and rewind we see that on the for example the matrix i mentioned this offline to you neo's passport expiration date september 11th 2001 and the movie came out in 1999 uh the last batman movie the dark knight rises from 2012 talks about aurora colorado what are the people behind the movies attempting to do to our subconscious mind with these somewhat veiled snippets of information 
Robert. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great question. Um, there's a, there's multiple ways you can look at this, and I agree with you. Um, it is it definitely um, and plays on the unconscious mind. Um, this is you know what Carl Gustav Jung talked about the collective unconscious. These the you know you know the things are just you know archaic remnants passed down from one generation to the next. Things that are just so inherent to our um, personalities, our psyche. Things like astrology, mythology, religion, numerology. Um, um, uh, mythology, um, things like that, that, that they are just I- inherent to us. Um, and these movie makers know it, and they, and they implant these little symbols um, to, to play with us. Alternatively, another, another way of looking at this is, I mean, and this is also a very valid point, is that um, the movie makers themselves are affected by this. So in the, in the book, I document instances where symbols may or, or, or themes appear in movies where it is clear the movie maker wasn't aware of um, the, 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 the thing he was actually putting into the film. Um, I, I cite the Ed Wood, a couple of the Ed Wood movies on this, um, where, I mean, he had no knowledge of Gnosticism, but, you know, if you want to see a Gnostic demiurge on film, look no further than his 1953 film, Glenn or Glenda, where Bella Lugosi plays one of the best Gnostic demiurges on screen. So the point I'm trying to make is they can also be affected by this. But yes, you're right. Um, that whole thing, I talk about it in the book. I mean, it's definitely one of the uh, most difficult uh, 9 references to reconcile, and it's just because of the type of movie it appears in, The Matrix, which has to do with um, you know very overarching themes of death and resurrection, the abandonment of the old age for the new age. Um, and, and you're right. If, if, if you know, when you watch the film for the first time, it'll go by you. You basically have to pause it. Um, and it's in the scene with Neo's passport where Smith is interrogating him. Um, and I mean, yeah, you're right. There it is. There's um, the expiration date of Neo's passport, which is September 11, 2001. I mean, it's not just some passing um, you know, 9-11 reference. I mean, it's the whole date. I mean, it's 9-11-2001. Um, also of interest is Neo's birth date, which is um, dualistic, um, and this ties into themes of Gnosticism. Um, the, the Matrix, all the Matrix movies are, are, just, a, are just a Gnostic religion, um, just one giant Gnostic fable from start to finish. But the um, also of note is the uh, birth date of, of Neo, which is September 13th, 1971. This is the date of the um, prison, um, the Attica prison riots in, in upper state New York, where the um, state, post, the, the, excuse me, the National Guard had to be called in to suppress the prison riot. And of course, it's, it's dualistic, where you have the suppression of the prisoners, yet it's going to be the birth date of Neo who frees mankind from the matrix, from their prison. So you have this dualistic date going on with his birthday. But yeah, the nine a whole the whole nine eleven thing. It's it's one of the. I mean, it's there. I, you know, and it, I say in the book, it's next to impossible to reconcile. Um, and like you said, it comes out two years um, before nine eleven actually happened. The Matrix, the first Matrix, I want to say, was released in nineteen ninety nine. So yeah, I mean, you know, you know how, how it got there. Your guess is as good as mine. You know, could someone maybe have known something on the inside? That's possible. Could it? Could could maybe some some you know the collective unconscious have some sort of. Um, um, you know, an anticipatory device possible. Um, but you know, there it is in the movie and, uh, it's by far and away one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, um, predictive nine 11 references there is in movies. And we're airing this, uh, interview on nine 11, 14, uh, 13 years after, uh, the event. And, you know, speaking of nine 11, and, and I don't mean to delve into this too much because I think, you know, we should not forget, but we should, uh, you know, opened other subjects every year we used to discuss 9-11 but we don't see this in movies 
only. We also see it in music. Take the, I mentioned this to you offline as well, take the Super Tram album Breakfast in America. So those who are listening, if you have access to your computer, just Google, go to Google Images and type Super Tramp 911. And you'll see that if you flip the image 180 degrees, you will see the number, you see 911 right above the Twin Towers. And that album came out in the ni- in 1979. And I know some people may say, yes, Mel, if I go outside and I look at clouds, I, I, I could make, I could connect some things. But 9-11 on top of the Twin Towers, do you think the music industry is also involved in injecting symbolism into people's psyche? Yes, absolutely. Um, this is without question. Um, I, I cite, um, I cite in the book, I mean, you know, you have numerous music, mu- musicians and, and, you know, Hollywood has this fascination with the occult and so does the movie, ma- oh, excuse me, so does the mu- music industry. Um, you know, Aleister Crowley, um, turns up, um, all over the place. He appears on Sgt. Pepper's, uh, on the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper. Um, uh, Led Zeppelin was obsessed with Aleister Crowley, specifically Jimmy Page, who actually owned, um, Crowley's house in Loch Ness called Bullskin. And th- this was where Crowley, is that uh, right? Did- Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't um, know that. No, uh, Jimmy Page owned um, Crowley's house in, in Loch Ness called Bullskin House, and this was where Crowley did the Abramel and the Mage rites, um, where he was trying to summon demons like Lucifuge, Rofacal, um, Belial, these high-ranking demons of hell. Um, Crowley did the ritual there. I want to say in 1901, 1902, he he breaks the ritual off. Um, we, we don't know why. Um, this this is a very highly complex system of magic um, that Crowley was was practicing. It involved fasting, um, keeping yourself out of daylight for for you know numerous days on a time. Um, and Crowley gives it up. Um, we don't know why. He never says. Um, we're just left to speculate. Um, so some have actually suggested um, that the Loch Ness monster. Um, was actually a demon, a, a, a Leviathan-like demon that Crowley summoned. Um, and, you know, that's the origins of the Loch Ness Monster. Um, and, and, and Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page sold the house, um, I want to say, in the early 1990s. He owned it from around 70 to 90, about 20 years. And, and, and Page claimed the head was, uh, or excuse me, the house was haunted by a floating severed head. Um, so, yeah, you know, you know Led Zeppelin um, was, was very into Aleister Crowley. You'll find Crowley on the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, um, album and and I talk about this in the book. You have the whole thing going on with the Beatles, with the whole Paul McCartney is dead. Abbey Road. Um, yeah, yeah. The the Abbey Road cover. Um, you know, and you'll find this in all their albums. Just about this this overarching theme that Paul McCartney was deceased from the get go, and and that there's like a substitute Paul McCartney or stand in. Um, and you know this this I mean th- th- there's clues on this. Just about on well, not on all, but a lot of the Beatles albums in their songs, the Abbey Road cover I talk about in 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 cinema symbolism, where you have just going across the street, you have John as as the god in 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 white, then you have um, Ringo being followed as the morning sexton in black. Paul is the corpse and and being the corpse, he's out of place with the others. he He's out of step. He's barefoot. His eyes are closed, and he holds the cigarette in the wrong hand. He's got his cigarette in the right hand, and Paul was left-handed. And then George follows as the grave digger in the, in the denim jeans. And then the license plate 28-if, that's the age of Paul McCartney in, 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 at the time, was 28-if, if he's alive. Um, and then you go to, like, Sergeant Pepper, you know, with the hand over his head. That's a symbol of death. You know, at the end of Strawberry Fields, it's alleged that John says, I buried Paul. You have the um, one album. Uh, yesterday, day, and tomorrow, where Paul appears on the cover in a trunk, um, which is sim- symbolizing a coffin. 
Um, yeah, I mean, just loads of Paul McCartney is not alive anymore. Um, references on Beatles albums, Beatles songs. So yeah, I mean, the, the movie making, or excuse me, the music making industry is much like the movie making industry. Um, very, very interested in the occult, mysticism, arcane philosophies, the ancient mysteries. Um, and if you see it in movies, by God, you're going to hear it in music. And, you know, I get a lot of emails at least once every couple of months. Somebody sent me, sending me information about this alleged incident of, of uh, Paul McCartney, the original Paul McCartney dying. And they're sending me pictures of the alleged imposter. And they put side by side and they show me the, the you know, the, the, the facial features, the, the ears. And I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not buying it 100 percent, but it's right. some of the stuff I get. It's 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 compelling. But if it's if it's true that they did this and you know they had to substitute somebody else, Beatles was a huge money making machine. Why do you think they're subtly putting this information out there, almost as if saying, "Yes, let's reinforce that it happened," but we're not telling you 100 percent. Well, that, that's just it. That's, that's, you know, that, that's the modus operandi. It's, it's what you call hiding in plain sight. And you put it out there right. and it gets people talking and it gets people, you know, it generates interest. Um, and that's another part of this is, you know, for lack of a better word, is controversy. Um, you know, there's no such thing as bad press for these people. And anything that gets people talking, good or bad, um, you know, you know they're, all, they're all in with. And, I, and I, I've, I've said, and I kind of say it in the book, um, you know, and, and, you know, when you watch a movie, I mean, th th there are there are blogs and people out there that every time you see a triangle in a movie, um, for lack of a better word, or, or a circular object next to a triangle, this means this movie is a demonic, Illuminati, satanic film. I mean, I don't necessarily buy that, um, but I, I will say that, you know, you know, when they do that, that could be the reaction they're looking for. Um, is to get people talking about it, to generate interest. Certainly there are movies where a pyramid, an eye in a triangle will appear and can have symbolic meaning in the context it's being shown in. But again, that's, that's part of this as well, is to get people talking, to generate controversy, to get people wondering, hey, maybe, maybe um, you know, Paul McCartney isn't alive. Oh, well, do you have the Beatle, this Beatle album? Maybe there's a clue on that. Um, you know, then, then someone has to go buy that album. Then someone starts writing articles about it. And, you know, this, this generates interest as well. So, I mean, that, that's, part of this, that's part of this paradigm as well. You know, you're mentioning the pyramid. Let's talk about the reverse of the Great Seal of the United States. I'm going to be jumping around the book for a moment. The It features an eye in the triangle, symbolizing Masonic deism and esotericism, esotericism. The movie Desperately Seeking Susan with Madonna. She's showing, she's shown wearing a jacket, and the director purposely has her back to the camera, and we see the pyramid and the eye. What is the purpose of showing this in many movies, to let us know who's on top and, and that they are separate from the rest of us? No, what you're, what, to me, what you're really kind of dealing with is, and this is sort of what I was just talking about, is, you know, for something like that, um, to me, you know, this is, of course, the, the, the symbol is what we're really talking about is the obverse seal of the great, you know, the great seal of the United States. 
Um, everyone knows the eagle. The pyramid with the all-seeing eye on top is the other side, um, although that's obviously becoming much more well-known today. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll see this turn up um, in, in movies from time to time. I point it out in the uh, Desperately Seeking. I talk about it in the book, the Madonna with the jacket with the, with the symbol on the back. And, again, to, to me, this, this is just, you know, a symbol. I mean, I think it's intentionally placed there. I, I don't think, oh, this is just by chance. But to me, something like this would be just, um, you know, perhaps putting it in to generate talking points. Oh, maybe this movie is being made by the Illuminati. Maybe Madonna is part of the Illuminati movie making music industry or something like that. Um, that, that would be sort of, or, you know, when Beyonce flashes the eye in the, in the triangle. I mean, to, to me, this is just Hollywood and the music industry being agent provocateurs, which is again, part of their modus operandi. But, um, I don't see it as evidence um, of, you know, this overarching Illuminati, uh, you know, satanic um, theme going on in Hollywood. But I do think they're using it, again, just to generate interest in the, in the work um, to get people talking, albeit perhaps in the way that they, they may not want it to be, or maybe in the exact way they want it to be. Well, when we think of Madonna, we think of the last Super Bowl and all the Egyptian stuff that he was using in the dancing. Now we see it with Beyonce. We see it with Katy Perry. We see it with uh, so many. But speaking of the pyramid and the capstone being separate, and that's where the eye is, but it's separate from the rest of the pyramid. If we think of the Great Pyramid of Giza, it doesn't have a capstone. Why do you think that is that they keep using this separation between the capstone and the pyramid? Well, I, th I think at least in, in, in masonry, the idea is that the capstone represents God, um, and that's why the capstone is above the rest of the pyramid. The, the eye, even, even outside the triangle, is, is uh, an emblem you'll see on Masonic documents, Masonic um, certificates. Masonic degrees prior to the creation of the Great Seal of the United States, the all-seeing eye. Um, this was basically an emblem of Masonic deism. Um, it's also known as the eye of providence. Um, so, so the eye hovering above the pyramid would basically be sort of the, connect, the disconnection between the celestial and the terrestrial. Um, it's certainly one way of looking at it. Um, another interpretation would be um, the, you know, that, that, there, that there is the secret cabal um, above the rest. Um, I talk about that more in the Royal Arch of Enoch book. I dissect the entire Great Seal symbol in the Royal Arch of Enoch book. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's a very mystical icon, um, and th there are numerous um, there are numerous ways to interpret it. Um, I, I get into it more in the Royal Arch book, where you will find with the Great Seal of the United States, the number thirteen is omnipresent, and you know, to me, this symbolizes on an exoteric level the original thirteen colonies, but on an esoteric level, it's the original Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial, the thirteenth degree in the Rite of Perfection, the thirteenth degree in the Scottish Rite, which sees the recovery of the lost word of mass of old master mason which is another way of you know the lost word that is the name of god which is by and large god himself so it's investing the the, the seal with a divine presence as it were um that's certainly the the, the uh, that's more something i talk about in the royal arch of enoch book but yeah you're right you'll see you'll see the symbol um pop up from in movies from time to time um and to me it's more you know the things going on with Katy Perry, um, you know, and, and Jay Z and Beyonce. This is more of like a production manager who's familiar with the occult, you know, you know, mysticism, you know, grimoires, incorporating these elements into their stage performance. 
um, to, to, to provoke people, um, you know, to draw on this ancient, you know, this ancient mysteries. Um, you'll find this being done by Mozart in the Magic Flute. You'll find this in the work of Shakespeare. So it's nothing new. Um, and again, it's just a way to um, get people talking about it. And, um, you know, like, like, you know, like we were talking about at the top of the show, it's, you know, to me at any rate, it's very powerful material. So, um, you know, that, that's sort of my take on it. And we have that also in the Vatican. We have so many Egyptian artifacts there. We have the obelisk. We have the pine cones and so on. But Star Wars, big movie for you and I growing up watching that. Oh, yeah. For our generation, it was a huge thing. Let me start with the Death Star. As you know, we can only see one side of our moon. And many speculate that it's not an actual natural object. I can't help but see the comparison between the Death Star and our moon. Do you see that too? Oh, no, I, I get more into the Egyptian solar mysticism of, of Star Wars. Um, I know the Death Star is a um, is referred to as a small moon in in the book, or excuse me, in the movie. But um, my my interpretation of Star Wars is based on the work of Joseph Campbell's monomyth, um, which is basically a solar allegory. Um, if 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 Luke Skywalker is the sun, which he is, um, then 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 the monomyth, which was laid out by an American mythologist. Um, and a, a, um, a American symbolist named jo- Joseph Campbell is um, is basically the solar hero's journey. Um, that that's what I, I really get more into the solar Egyptian take on um, the Star Wars movies. Um, but yeah, the the Death Star does turn up in the um, in part of Campbell's mythology. Um, p- part of the solar journey is what's called being trapped in the belly of the whale. Um, this is when the sun god has to fight his way out. Um, of, of some sort of enclosed, captured-like area, and you'll find this in Star Wars um, with, with, with Luke Skywalker and the Rebels in the belly of the Death Star fighting their way out of the trash compactor, um, and, and, you know, this is where Obi-Wan has to give himself up to help the son, you know, who is the Hermes Trismegistus character, who, who gives himself up to um, uh, help the sun god out and lo- allow the sun god from escape the so-called belly of the whale. You, you'll find the story in the Bible. It's the um, Jonah and the whale story, where Jonah is the sun, the belly of the whale is the constellation Cetus. Um, so yeah, you, you know this is all part of the solar monomyth. Um, and this, I get into this into the Star Wars episodes one, two, and three, and I also get into some of the mysticism and the real occultism um, of uh, one, two, and three. Or excuse me, four, five, and six, which is really the Campbell monomyth. But one, two, and three also has some uh, unique symbolism going on in it as well. It's interesting how actors like Sir Alec Guinness, who portrayed Obi Wan Kenobi, they were laughing at the at the script, and you know they were hesitant in doing the movie, and you know the rest is history. But George Lucas, do you think all these ideas came from George Lucas, or did let me refer to it as the hidden hand? Did the hidden hand give Lucas information to add? To these movies, oh, I, don't, I, I think Lucas probably. I mean, whether a hidden hand gave gave it to him, that we'll probably never know. Um, but I will say this: Lucas has said on numerous occasions um, that he was heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell. Um, in fact, um, the copy of the book of the, the the book that that Star Wars is based upon is called "Hero with a Thousand Faces," written by Joseph Campbell. And the copy that I have here actually has um, a testimonial in the back by Lucas. Um, so Lucas, um, you know, acknowledges uh, acknowledges Campbell. Now, if if you know how Lucas came into contact with it, that we'll probably never know. However, I do suggest in the book, um, and this is a likely source for this, a lot of this material is literally 
a stone's throw from the Hollywood movie-making industry in Los Angeles, you will find Manly Palmer Hall's um, Philosophical Research Society. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you it is literally a stone's throw away from um, the Hollywood movie-making industry. And, and for, for those listening who, who are not familiar with this, Manly Palmer Hall was this real famous Canadian mystic. Um, he was a Freemason. Um, and I want to say in the 1920s, 30s, he founded what's known as the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, which is this gigantic library dedicated to books on um, the occult, mysticism, you know, secret societies, the ancient mystery schools, astrology, mysticism, Kabbalah, numerology. Um, this, this is literally a, a literally walking distance from Hollywood. Um, so, you know, this is a likely source for a lot of this material as well. Um, I talk about that in the book as, as, as a possible source for this material. And I, it's a story I tell. I didn't put it in the book, but um, it, it's, it's worth mentioning. I'll just mention it briefly, just, just you know, about this sort of arcana. And, you know, it ties into your question. Um, when the X-Files was on in the 1990s, um, one of the guys, one of the actors, I can't remember which one it was, who played the lone gunman, who played one of the lone gunmen. These were the conspiracy guys who helped out Mulder and Scully. Well, anyway, during one of the shoots, he had to go in and talk to one of the script writers or the producers or one of the higher-ups on the show. I can't remember what it was, but it was one of the higher-ups on the X-Files. And he had a question about his character or something to that effect. And he said he walked into their office, and he was just talking to them. And he said his eyes were drawn to this person's bookshelf. There was that. Um, Ding he, Haglund probably did that. Yeah, yeah, and, and that that's, that sounds right. And and said basically, he said on on the bookshelf, he said I was expecting to find books about Hollywood script writing, things like that. He said all it was was books by Aleister Crowley, Madame Blavatsky, Manly P. Hall, the occult mysticism. He said so. You know, these guys are aware of this stuff, and you know, are incorporating it in, into this material. Um, you know, and, and and to me, you know, like I, you know, if if you were to see this once or twice in a movie or even in a couple movies, I'd be willing to chalk this up to coincidence. But when you see see it like I do, um, you know, and not every movie has it. I mean, that's also important to point out, but I mean, there are definitely movies that incorporate these mythological themes and, and by incorporating these themes, tip you off with these hidden clues, symbols to tell you this. Um, and, and, you know, you know, it, it's irrefutable that this is going on and it is not a coincidence. So, yeah, I mean, and you know, th this is really the crux of the book was, was, you know, talking about this and pointing out this little esoteric going on in some of these popular movies. No, absolutely. And that book, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, that's from 1949. And it's incredible how it, to this day, continues influencing songwriters and even game designers. Isn't that incredible? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely about it. You will find um, components of of that book. Um, you know, we were talking about Star Wars. Um, you will find components of this in um, the Matrix movies. You will find um, this in The Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, it, it incorporates these themes. Um, the the C.S. Lewis material incorporates, uh, you know, the, the Narnia tales um, uh, 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 contain elements uh, of Campbell's work. Um, the Harry Potter, same thing. Um, the Harry Potter stories also reflect the uh, Joseph Campbell monomyth uh, coming out of Hero. So yeah, I mean it's a highly influential book. Yeah, I mean, and you know, you know, you talk about video games. That's a whole other subject where you will find, um, 
you know, I mean, I mean, I, I, I have a PS3 here. Yeah, I mean, I, I have found this in video games as well. I haven't written a book about it yet, but um, you know, and and this is another study is you know, in, you know, incorporation of sort of some of this mysticism into video games. Um, you know, and and, and the book, the, the the cinema symbolism book, um, mentions it a little bit. But you know, you actually find, um, you know, we, we talk about you know hidden icons in movies. You will find instances where a casting of an actor is a cult in nature. Um, the release date of a, of a movie is actually a cult in nature, nature the day it was released. Um, I think of the final conflict, the last Omen movie. Um, and you will also find um, the artwork, the posters um, associated with a movie um, can be esoteric in nature. So, I mean, it's not only the movie itself, it's a lot of the related media as well. I'm thinking of Eyes, eyes Wide Shot. I'm thinking of the the when it was released, and I forgot, uh, July 16th, 19. 99, and I think it was seven days before, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, Stanley Kubrick passed away. So there's something to do with those dates as well. But one last question about uh, Star Wars, and then I'll I'll bring back Star Wars later, because I think it's really important to discuss all the movies and the prequels. What is Princess Leia's relationship to the moon? Well, right. That's exactly what she is. She She is the moon. Um, when you have the um, the hero, which is Luke Skywalker, who's a solar stand-in, much like Neo and Harry Potter are, um, where you have the name Luke Skywalker, the name Luke comes from the Latin lux, which means light, and of course, what light skywalks, of course, the sun. Um, and this is, you know, in, in ancient mythology, and, you know, I'll do a little comparative mythology religion here. Um, in the Egyptian religion, the sun was, you know, Osiris, but he's dead and killed and goes, becomes this sun god of the afterlife. And of course, the, the, the god who replaces him is Horus, the sun god. Um, and he does battle with a, with a god of darkness named Set or Seth. Um, and in the, you know, comparatively, Horus is the Greco-Roman Apollo, um, Apollo, the sun god. Um, and he does the same thing. He does battle with Set or Seth, only it's called Python. Um, and it comes from the Greek Typhon, which was also Set or Seth. Um, and Apollo, being the sun, naturally has the lunar sister, Diana. So Luke Skywalker, as the sun or Apollo, has the lunar sister, Princess Leia, who is always seen, by and large, in the white robes of the moon. And of course, being the sun and the moon, they do battle with the Set lords, or the Sith Lords, who are the Lords of Darkness, Darth Vader, Darth Maul, Darth Sidious. So you have this overarching theme of mythology or of Egyptian mythology going on um, with the Star Wars movies, with at least episodes four, five, and six. Um, and again, Luke Skywalker is the solar hero. Um, so you have the Campbell monomyth documenting his solar journey. Um, and components of this would be like things like where he gets supernatural aid. This is when Kenobi gives him the the, Scott, the uh, lightsaber, belly of the whale. We talked about atonement with the father. That's kind of an obvious one. But if you read the book, if you read Cinema Symbolism, I really break it down, um, the Campbell monomyth um, in, in, in the Star Wars movies. And again, it's applicable not only to that, but it's applicable to the Matrix films, Harry Potter, um, the Neo, the Matrix with Neo as well, who who is the uh, another solar hero, um, and yeah, you'll you'll find it. Um, you know, again, it's it's very powerful, and um, you'll find it in, in in popular movies, no question about it. And I hope that what I'm about to say doesn't offend anyone's intellect, but you may have seen the trend of movies that basically are directed at people with a a short attention span. Watch a movie from the 1950s or even 1980s. You see movie credits uh, at the beginning, they're long, and they take their time to develop the story. 
Now, hardly any credits at the beginning, and it begins with a lot of action and visuals. Otherwise, the audience becomes bored. Are the producers dumbing us down and a portion of the movie is directed at a at our subconscious mind. In other words, our movies becoming more and more mind control and social engineering tools. Well, I don't know if I would say it's a great question whether it's it's a form of mind control. Um, I don't necessarily see see it that way, um, but I understand the argument, and I, you know I understand that when people say you know when people hear well these guys are playing around with your unconscious mind, it is a form of mind control. I do understand the argument. I, I see it as they're incorporating this these motifs to to turn their work into you know, and they're not going to tell you, it, and it's no different than. Uh, an architect who incorporates sacred geometry or astrological alignments into a building, they're not going to tell you unless you're consciously become aware of it, and then you'll start to see it. And it's the same thing with a movie. Um, they're incorporating it on an unconscious level, but if you start, if, if, if you train your eye to start to see it, and this is, again, what, what the cinema symbolism does, basically. I point out all, a lot of this stuff. Um, then you'll start noticing, and, you know, and you'll kind of know what to look for. Um, you know, is it a form of mind control? It's certainly debatable. I don't see it that way. Um, I see it more as um, uh, the incorporation of this material to turn a piece of celluloid into a sublime piece of artwork and a very powerful one, um, because literally Hollywood is printing money off of this stuff. But, um, you know, you know, with the credits and things like that, um, you know, you you can even find, um, um, you know, you know, with with the opening credits of a film. Um, and I talk about this in, in Cinema Symbolism, and it's more in the book I'm writing right now, Cinema Symbolism 2, where even the opening credits and the color schemes um, can have occult symbolism, um, you know, you know where, where, where the color schemes being used um, in, in, in opening credits can actually uh, pl- play on your collective unconscious and foreshadow things coming along in the movie. So, yeah, I mean, even, even the credits are, are not immune um, to this material as well. Yeah, I remember watching in 1978, uh, speaking about not-so-old movies, but the Christopher Reeves version of Superman, 1978. It's probably about 10 minutes of credits. Alexander Salkind, about a minute on the screen. Elias Salkind. And how about all those giant faces that pass judgment on on General Zod and his lieutenants at the beginning of of the movie? What are they? Right. Well, that actually comes out of history um, with 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 the opening of of um, Superman and Superman is another one of these um, solarized Christ like messianic savior type figures. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, he's really a Jesus Christ like figure, you know, the only begotten son sent to Earth with powers to save mankind from itself. In, in, in the in the you know in, in, in the seventy eight Superman with Reeves he performs the miracle of resurrecting the dead when he brings um when he Lois brings Lane. Um, Mar- Lois Lane back to life Margaret in, Kidder. in the one I'll get to the faces in a minute in, in the one they just released I mean it's really pre- prevalent yes yes um the, the Man of Steel movie where where I mean I mean Superman is constantly flying around cruciform in front of the sun um and of course in in Royal Arch and this is something we talked about before and I know you've done shows on this as well where you have the whole concept of Jesus Christ being the Sun Man the Sun God the Son of God with the you not a no astrotheology. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even 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 in in the in the Russell Crowe Superman, the last one. I mean, he says to Superman, he says, "You'll make the humans, the Earthlings, one with the sun." And 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 Clark Kent, Superman, is constantly flying around cruciform in front of the sun. And and then and then the the, the kicker is. 
Superman, when, 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 he, when he announces who he is and General Zod shows up, it's, it's 33 years into his life. I mean, this was the age of Christ at his crucifixion, 33 years. How old are you there, Superman? I'm 33. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, I mean that, that's you know, such a dead giveaway that, that Superman is, is being played as this Christ-like savior of mankind. When you go back to the original um, Superman with Reeves, yeah, that, that's actually something coming out of history. And, and that's something also these um, movie makers will use is, is, um, is, is historical motifs. Um, you know, you know, people in history to denote certain things. Um, and, and what you have with the giant faces, that is, um, you, you are watching the star chamber, which was a, a real, um, court in England where you appeared, um, it was put out of business by Oliver Cromwell in the long parliament, but in a lo- to make a long story real short, um, it was a super famous, um, court, um, called the star chamber. And the reason it was called the star chamber was, um, the court had, uh, zodiacs painted on the ceiling, um, and astrological motifs, but you appeared in the star chamber without counsel, um, and, and a prosecutor just read off the sentence and a series of judges just passed judgment on you right then and there. And, and that's what you're witnessing at the opening of the uh, of star Wars or excuse me, of Superman is Krypton star chamber where Zod and the other two are being tried in the star chamber. Um, they have no defense counsel. There's no jury. Um, the judges, um, pass immediate sentence on them, and then they are sentenced to the Phantom Zone with no chance of parole, and that comes straight out of history. Um, England's famed Star Chamber, which was, um, I want to say it was around from around um, the 1300s, uh, maybe a little later, the 1400s. I have to go check my history book, but I want to say it was put out of business by Oliver Cromwell in the Long Parliament um, in around 1649, 1650. Um, yeah, the Star Chamber, um, you'll see that. That's a very um, historical motif going on right at the beginning of Star Wars. Um, fascinating, fascinating subject matter. The incorporation of history of or real life historical events veiled in movies. Um, you'll find that also um, when it comes to this esoterica. I wonder if there's a correlation here between what you're saying and also all the prisoners that made the prison colony of Australia. But anyway, that's a different topic. I always say that if we wish for something to keep shining, is the sun. Without the sun, there wouldn't be life in our solar system. Is this why we see so much symbolism about the sun? What is the real purpose with showing so much of the sun hidden and unhidden? Yeah, well, that's just it. Um, you know, you know it's, it's been widely argued that the oldest form of worship um, of mankind is, you know, Sabianism. Yeah, the sun, uh, the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Um, and you're right. I mean, without the sun, there'd be no life on Earth. Um, people seem to forget that if the sun burnt out tomorrow um, and stopped um, shining tomorrow, um, yeah, we'd all be dead. Um, that, that would be the end of planet Earth. So, you know, f- for man um, in its primitive days to worship the sun was not unusual or uncommon. And then, of course, you have, um, you know, the moon ties into this, of course, which reflects the sun's rays. Then you have the astrological symbolisms with the 12 houses of the zodiac. Um, th- this is all very, pa- I mean, this is all very, very powerful mythology, religion coming straight out of the world of Carl Gustav Jung's collective unconscious. Um, I mean, you know, you know, and this is no state secret. We, we talked about this in, in the last you know, time I was on your show, you know, this, this is also, you know, the veiled, the veiled religions of the world, you know, with Christianity, Jesus being the sun man, having the 12 apostles, you'll find this in Judaism with Moses, you know, with the ram's horns being Aries, having the 12 tribes of Israel, um, certainly even Islam incorporates a lot of stellar 
um, veiled stellar adoration, you know, planetary adoration. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's, you'll find it even in the religion, you'll find it in the mythology. I mean, you know, you know, we were just talking about Apollo being the sun God, Diana being the lunar God. You'll see these characters on the screen. You'll find this mythology on the screen. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's very powerful material. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's like you said, some of it's hidden in plain sight and some of it is, 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 you know, more noticeable than others. Um, but you know, you you know, it, it definitely incorporates the elements of, uh, you know, or, or sort of echoes the sentiments of Carl Gustav Jung, the collective unconscious. And, and this comes from the world of Plato. Um, also, what, you know, this is what Plato called theory of forms. Um, the things like magic, sorcery, numerology, again, the constellations were just so embedded in, in the human personality, it's unavoidable. And, and again, it's, it ties in also, you know, that I believe this is, I mean, I, I agree with you, I believe it's intentionally being used, but I, I have documented in the book instances where the filmmakers themselves were not aware of it. Um, we're not aware of this esoterica, but we're incorporating it anyway. Um, and again, you know, you know, it just goes to show you that these guys aren't even immune to this stuff. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars. I mean, this is the oldest form of worship. And, um, you know, it's very powerful symbolism. And again, you know, the sun man, the dying and resurrected sun man. I mean, it's Superman. You know, you'll find it with the Batman mythology, where Batman's the, you know, the, the, the savior of Gotham City. I mean, you know, where do you want to go with this? I mean, James Cole in 12 Monkeys, 12 Monkeys, 12 Houses of the Zodiac. J.C. J.Z., Jesus right. Christ. John Coffey in Green Mile, you know, uh, who resurrects the little dead mouse. J.C., who dies for the sins of the South. Um, you know, so you'll, you'll, you'll find this stuff uh, all over the place. And, um, you know, cinema symbolism, my first foray into this. If you like what I'm talking about, definitely check out the book. Yes, definitely. And speaking of, of J.C., that appears in so many movies. I'm told that the movies Terminator and The Matrix were really one story and that Sarah Connor was personifying Mary and John Connor, J.C., once again, was personifying Jesus Christ. No father to be found and that John Connor was, in fact, Neo from The Matrix and that The Matrix is synonymous with Skynet. Have you heard this before? No, I, I haven't, but I agree. I haven't heard this, but you're right with the Terminator that, that I talk about in the book where, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, the, the, you have, you know, John Connor, JC, the savior of mankind, um, you know, you know, who, who battles the robots to save mankind, um, you know, fr you know, fr from the evil, you know, the, 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 the man who, you know, we're willing to sacrifice himself, J, you know, JC, for, for the sins of mankind, that, you know, who created the robots. I, I haven't heard the nexus with um, Neo, but Neo is another one of these guys, um, you know, is another one of these dying and resurrected sun men. Um, th this is confirmed all over um, th th in the Matrix movies, the whole concept with Neo, death and resurrection, enlightenment. Um, you know, uh, you know, being, you know, has the sacred feminine, um, you know, with, with Trinity. I mean, just look at her name. Oh, I mean, yeah, the, the, the matrix is, is, uh, you know, and especially the first one, the other two have it as well, but the first matrix is just overloaded with Gnostic, you know, solar, you know, themes. I mean, in fact, I would, I, I don't, I don't, I've never heard of the nexus between of the two movies, um, but I could see where there could be one. Um, but yeah, with the matrix, good grief. Um, you know, if you ever want to watch a Gnostic movie, the, the first matrix movie would be the godfather of them all. I, I can't even think of, I mean, a, another movie that, that is more Gnostic probably than the first matrix film. And this was told to me by Sophia Stewart, the alleged author of the matrix and 
the Terminator. She alleges that the Wachowski brothers stole the uh, the copyrights from her. But she says, quote, the child in the first Terminator who is born to the pregnant lady, Sarah Connor, grows up to be the, the same as the grown man character in The Matrix called Neo. It's that chosen one. Savior concept. Matrix, Matrix starts in the future when technology has taken over. The Terminator was sent to kill the child who was prophesied to destroy the machines. That intersects directly with Neo as being the one prophesized to bring the machine reign to an end. Unquote. Very interesting. Mm, absolutely. Definitely a unique parallel, but I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you, you will find um, the, 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 the whole dying and resurrected Sun Man, um, you, know, you know, all over the place. It's Neo in, in the first Matrix, um, in, in 12 Monkeys with um, uh, James Cole, J.C., has the say you know is sent from the from the future to save mankind from itself with the deadly virus at the end of the film he's dead and resurrected when he watches himself die but then leaves as the little boy um, and then has the Mary Magdalene figure who who believes him um, which is the psychiatrist Catherine Raleigh played by Madeline Stowe so yeah I mean yeah th- this is a repetitive theme used by Hollywood very powerful material what about the Omen trilogy and the Exorcist they're both set against an autumn and winter backdrop. Always, I always like, I don't know why, I don't mean to be morbid, but I like those uh, 70s movies. Even there's a few movies coming from Spain now. I forgot, uh, uh, I forgot what's the name of the, uh, when you have a, a, a bunch of children with a parent, the orphanage, the orphanage, same thing with that. They had this dark autumn and winter backdrop. What's the correlation here? Oh, that's absolutely right, Mel. Um, and you'll see it in The Exorcist, and, and you'll find it in The Omen as well. And Kubrick, Kubrick plays around with this in The Shining as well. Um, in The Exorcist, um, when, when you have the darkness entering Georgetown, um, you, you have a lot of uh, Manichaean cosmology going on in you know, light versus dark, sun versus night. Um, symbology going on in, in The Exorcist. And of course, this is symbolizing the um, darkness entering Georgetown. And they, they do this, they show you this by the weather um, and the time of year it is outside. And Friedkin, um, who direct, William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist, he shows you this um, by showing you that it's Halloween in The, in the Exorcist when and Halloween is celebrated on October 31st. This is the halfway point um, between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. This is known as the darker half, when the darker half of the year takes over, when the sun is in decay or death, when light is in decay or death, you know, you know on an astral theological motif, when Jesus Christ would be in decay and death. So darkness, evil, takes over. And, and Friedkin shows you this um, in The Exorcist when... Um, the, the, the actress, uh, Ellen Bernstein, is walking home from the set from Georgetown University, is walking through George, is Georgetown and is accosted by the trick-or-treaters. That's his way of telling you, hey, we're at Halloween. Darkness is about to enter Georgetown, enter the little girl, you know, and, and just take over this movie. Um, but he doesn't flash it on the screen, but he does it on, on an unconscious. He shows you it consciously, but it's more of an unconscious feel to it, um, appeal to your unconscious mind by showing you the trick-or-treaters, by introducing you, hey, this is Halloween, this is when darkness is taking over the film. The Omen movies do the same thing, um, and it really is noticeable in the second Omen movie, um, m- much more so. In, in the third one, it's over the top. Um, that is just straight astro-theology yeah. is the third one. Um, the, the, the second Omen movie does this as well. With um, it, the, the, This is when the Antichrist, Damien Thorne, 
is coming of age, um, turning into a teenager, a young man, coming to power. Um, pay attention to the weather in the movie. It, it's perpetually winter and autumn when the sun, light, you know, Christ is at death. Um, you know, and this is when the Antichrist is coming to power. And that's one of the ways they, they play at this. Um, it's just by showing you um, darkness, autumn, the death of the sun, and then winter when the sun is in death. Um, and of course, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, so they do that in The Omen. They do this in, Kubrick does this in The Shining as well. Um, he tells Jack Torrance, uh, the, the, the manager of the hotel, tells Torrance um, Nicholson, when he gets to the hotel, he says uh, that, that the hotel's operating days um, are in business from May the 1st to October 30th. So, you know, October 30th is the last day of operation. So the Torrance family actually arrive at the hotel on Halloween. Um, now, he doesn't tell you that. Uh, he doesn't actually flash up, you know, October 31st on the screen or say, you know, you will be arriving on Halloween. But he tells you it by saying the, the hotel closes on October 30th. So, you know, the first uh, the first time in the hotel with the family, there is Halloween. And again, darkness taking over, allowing the evil spirits of the hotel free reign to come out and ter terrorize the family. Um, yeah, you, you know, th this whole concept of light versus darkness, and especially when you're dealing with things like demonism, the devil, um, you know, you, you'll find them playing around with the weather outside with where, where it'll take uh, the story will take place um, in, 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 you know, winter, autumn. Um, and you'll find this polar opposite in the third o Omen movie, the, the final conflict, um, which of all things was, you know, sees the death of the Antichrist, um, the end of the Antichrist. The movie was released on the vernal equinox, 1981, when the sun is resurrected from darkness, when the sun in the northern hemisphere moves out, you know, out of winter. The three-month stone of winter is rolled away, as it were, and uh, the, the, the sun returns to the northern hemisphere in all its glories. You know, the days start becoming longer, i.e. darkness starts to fade away. Um, and, you know, the Omen movie, the third Omen movie, was actually released on the vernal equinox. If you watch the movie, this is where the Antichrist is destroyed on the vernal equinox in the movie, where, where Christ, the, 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 the second coming is around March 22nd, 23rd, a clear reference to the vernal equinox. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, the third Omen movie is just really overloaded with a lot of astro-theological themes. I mean, all three of them are. But, um, yeah, I mean, two, two and three really take over with the uh, weather, with the whole weather motif. When I think of the Omen 1981, I, I was always fascinated with the... Whatever the director used to film that movie, they use some kind of lens effect, a little bit blurry, that gives the movie a very peculiar mood. And also, when I think of The, the Shining, I think of uh, The Eagles Hotel California. I don't know why I think of that song when I think of The Shining. But let me go back to The Omen and The Exorcist again. Mm -hmm. In The Omen, we have Damien Thorne. I used to think that Thorne had an E in the end, making it 6-6, six, six, but it's 5. But in The Exorcist, the priest... Damien, Damien Karras is 6'6". Six, six. What are they trying to tell us about this Jesuit priest with the six letters in the name and last name, or is it coincidental? Not to mention the name Damien, which is associated with the omen or Antichrist too. Right. I, I think I think more of with with that with that would be more of a coincidence thing. Um, the the Karis character. Um, this is um, he's the Jesus Christ figure of the movie. Um, he is constantly, if you pay attention to the Om or excuse me to the Exorcist, he is in a constant state of upward mobility. Um, when you watch the Exorcist, he is always moving upwards, up a flight of steps, up a road. 
Um, and and your, your tip off that he is going to be this little girl's apothe- you know, apotheosized savior, her Christ-like savior is when he's introduced in the film, he is seen walking up a flight of steps. Um, onto a subway platform, um, pay attention to the sign behind him. He's coming up from 33rd Street. And again, this is your Jesus Christ reference of 33 years on earth. Christ was crucified when he was 33. So this is the filmmaker's way of telling you this is going to be the little girl's Jesus Christ um, figure in the, in the movie. Um, it's interesting that they do choose, choose the name Damien Thorne, or uh, Damien, for the, um, the, for the Antichrist. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's just more of a coincidence. Um, Blatty, who wrote the, the Exorcist, William Peter Blatty, um, the, the character's name remains the same in the book um, as Damien Karras. Um, the, 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 the Omen movie comes out, you know, seven or eight years later. Um, so, yeah, and there was no book based on the Omen. That was just a screenplay. So, I mean, that does seem to be sort of a coincidence um, to me. But when you pay attention to Karras, yeah, pay attention to him constantly walking up a flight of steps. Um, and then, of course, he, during the entire film, has doubt about his own faith, about his, you know, religious beliefs. Um, when, when you see him the first time, he walks up the flight with the 33 behind him. Then a few minutes later, you see him going into his mother's house. Um, right next to the mother's door, you will see graffiti that says quit. Um, and again, this is symbolizing his, his skepticism um, about Christianity that permeates the film. This, this is finally symbolized at the conclusion of the film when he does exercise the little girl successfully, he drives the demon out. Of course, the demon comes into him, and then he, he flings himself out the window and then falls down the steps. Um, and this is, of course, symbolizing his doubt. He's got rid of the demon, but it, you know, it cost him his life, and he has his downfall um, falling down the steps, symbolizing his doubt and his reservations about Christianity that, if, you know, that are all over the film from start to finish. But we know the exorcism is successful because when he's laying there dying, um, there's a piece of graffiti on the wall written next to him that says pigs um, in capital letters. This is an obvious reference to the gospel tales where Jesus exercised demons into a herd of pigs and then cast them over a cliff to die. Um, so, you know, this is symbolizing that Karis has, in fact, exercised the demon, falls down the steps, symbolizing his doubt. Um, and then you have the reference to the gospel tale of Jesus casting out the demons into the herd of pigs. Um, so you'll find that symbology in the omen as well. The whole thing with the Jesuits, this is, you know, the Society of Jesus is, is you know, for lack of a better word, the Roman Catholic sol- solar magisterium, the, the modern-day sun priests, um, you, you will find this on the seal of the Jesuits, which, which is the sun. Um, so you have the whole idea of the little girl being possessed by the dark demon. So in order to get rid of the darkness in the little girl, you've got to invoke the sun, call in the sun priests, which is the two Jesuits. This is, you know, Father Marin, who is uh, Max von Cito and Damien Karras. That's Jason Miller. Um, and we talked about we talked about the Father Karras character, the, the, the Lancaster Marin father, you know, uh, Max von Cito character. He's based on a real life Jesuit priest named Athanathus Kirscher, who was interested in, you know, Kirscher himself was, in, you know, in influential in discovering Christianity's true pagan solar origins, you know, and, and, and digging up, you know, ruins and tombs and things like that. And he, he wrote a lot of treatises, you know, com- comparing, you know, talk, comparative treaties, talking about, re- you know, Christianity's, 
you know, Egyptian solar roots, things like that, and how Jesus was, you know, Horus and, you know, the devil was set, things like that. So, of course, in The Exorcist, you'll find Marin at the start of the film digging up the pagan tombs, um, clearly reflecting um, this Jesuit priest, Athanathus Kircher, and, of course, um, all the, the, both the two priests in the film are both Jesuits, the sun priest, the solar magisterium. So that invokes this whole, that's on a subliminal, unconscious level, you have the sun versus darkness, light versus dark, Manichaean cosmology which is, um, again, a fancy way of me saying light versus dark. Um, and this is, you know, the whole motif going on in the, in the Omen movie where the, the darkness is in the little girl, so you invoke the sun to get rid of it. And it's interesting, this is unrelated, but the fact that right now we have the only Jesuit pope uh, never in the history, I believe, of, of papacy, we've seen a Jesuit pope, Pope Francis. And also you mentioned Max von Sydow. I don't know why I'm thinking of Flash Gordon. I don't, I don't believe you mentioned the movie under in the, the uh, what was the name, uh, the Dino De Laurentiis, uh, the director. But uh, he reminds me of the devil in that movie, Max von Sydow, Ming. Did you ever watch that movie, Flash Gordon, the, the 1980s yes. version? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes... Um, you know, you know, you, you're right about the current current pope. That is the only Jesuit pope we've had. That is absolutely 100% true. Um, yeah, with with Max von Sydow playing the Jesuit, um, playing the good guy in um, in The Exorcist. Um, sometimes movie directors will do this: is cast a cast an actor that can have. Um, esoteric meaning. So, 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 you know, I, I've seen the Flash Gordon movie where, where Max von Sydow plays Ming the Merciless um, and definitely has sort of that demonic, you know, look to him. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it could it could have, um, you know, sim symbolic meaning where, you know, you know, he was where the director, De Laurentiis, was trying to, you know, sort of polarize, you know, and present the opposite on screen. Um, you know, where you had Marin a few years later as the good guy, so let's cast him as the villain. Um, this would not surprise me at all. I actually document a, a case of this um, in, in, in Cinema Symbolism. I, I, I document two cases of occult casting. There's more of them, which I talk about in Cinema Symbolism, too. But, you know, just the one where, you, where it's the opposite, where they cast somebody for the opposite meaning um, is Anthony Zerby um, in Omega Man, where he played the mutant um, Matthias, um, and there's this whole scene in 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 um, in o Omega Man where where Anthony Zerbi as Matthias is talking about how he wants to destroy mankind, how he hates the Charlton Heston ca character who's living in the apartment, um, you know, and how 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 Heston um, in his apartment is the last bastion of mankind, and he has to be fettered out of the apartment, and how the whole family can't get him out of the damn apartment, you know, and, and the whole family's purpose is to rid to rid the world of the old ways and get rid of Heston. Um, Zerby has these exact lines, um, only they're reversed um, in The Matrix Reloaded, where, where, where Zerby is cast as the, 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 the chancellor of Zion. And he has this exact same conversation with Neo, only it's reversed, where he is the last bastion of mankind, and Zerby wants to save mankind, and how Neo and the crew and the people in Zion are the last holdout of mankind against the machines, and how Zerby, 
you know, who's the chancellor, will do everything in his power to, to, to safeguard the remnants of mankind so they'll go forward. So, so you'll have that, you, know, you will have a cult casting with that, where one actor will be cast where he's presented in one way, and then he'll deliver something completely opposite years later. I mean, Anthony Zerbe in The Matrix Reloaded, I mean, there is no way that's a coincidence. It is almost the exact same dialogue that he has with Neo, which, but it's only reversed in, in 1971's Omega Man. So yeah, I mean, you know, you will find evidence of um, occult casting in movies where actors or actresses are cast, you know, for, for various reasons. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting study. I talk about it in Cinema Symbolism. I'm getting more into it in Cinema Symbolism, too. And Flash Gordon, great soundtrack by Queen, actually one of my favorites. Uh, but this is the last question for this segment, and then I'll get you answer on the other side when we come back from the break. You mentioned sure. Edwin, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, the second man to allegedly walk on the moon, and people who listen know why I say allegedly. And the fact he allegedly claimed the moon as Scottish right territory. Since you're a high-degree Mason, what can you tell us about the connection between all Apollo astronauts being Masons and also the Tranquility Lodge 2000 in Texas but I'll get you I'll get you answer on the other side tell people how to buy this book and your other book well thank you thank you Mel yes um, we'll wrap up this hour and we'll do the second hour for the subscribers absolutely if you're interested in, in, in my books Royal Arch of Enoch or Cinema Symbolism please be, visit my website the easiest way to buy these is www.robertwsullivaniv.com my name is Robert W. Sullivan the fourth so it's www.robertwsullivaniv.com there's links there to buy the books um, the signed copies are through, sold through my publisher. You click on the banner. There's a link that says Buy Rob's Books if you want the ebooks, the Kindles, the Nooks, the Apple I Bookstores. You'll find that all that there. Links to my YouTube channel, um, Twitter feed, Facebook like pages. Just go to www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Uh, links to buy the book, social media. Everything you want is right there. And we have lots and lots more to discuss when we come back to discuss more of cinema, cinema symbolism. A Guide to Esoteric Imagery in Popular Movies. I'm here with my special guest, Robert W. Sullivan IV. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. Enjoy. 